I know you're into rocks. Are you into rocks? I've been collecting rocks since I was a little kid. I like crystals. Um... Of course kids are drawn to rocks because it's there's so many ways that they can have that sensory input with them. Picking up shiny rocks and showing them off and putting them in a bag never to be seen again. That's basically my experience with rocks. You know, who doesn't like crystals and agates and anything shiny? It, you know, it's like rockosophy, but in a podcast. It's rockcast podosophy. Let's do it. Hello, welcome to our most recent episode of Rockcast Podosophy. This is Rock Rat. I'm sitting here with Tina Bullets. Tina, thanks for coming. Hi. Hi, Tori. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Tina Blewett. We're currently in Spokane, Washington. Um, I'm a Spokane, Washington native. I grew up here and then I lived in Seattle for about 18 years. Then I lived abroad for a couple of years, mostly in the tropics in Latin America. Um, I have an undergrad in oceanography, um, which is a hysterical story because I grew up not outdoorsy at all. My parents did nothing. We didn't even do Bloomsday, which is a famous like run here in Spokane. It's like one outdoorsy event that even non-outdoorsy people will go do this 7K in the middle of downtown Spokane. Um, and, um, or is it a 12K? I don't even know. And um, so I grew up not outdoorsy at all, but I decided in high school because I liked science that I wanted to be an oceanographer, having no clue what that even meant, really. I sort of had a vague idea. Um, so I moved to Seattle, got my undergrad in oceanography, lived there for 18 years, um, had, a job, had a couple of jobs just doing GIS, some jobs in marine science, some jobs in atmospheric science and fisheries, and then I decided to go back to grad school, got my uh, master's in wildlife management and ecology, um, and I studied birds. I'd always loved birds, but had never done anything on birds, so I chose that as a master's, but not, the interesting thing about my master's, which is I think what really set me on, really helped me focus my passion, because I think what I, my passion is, is that, you know, humans are so intimately connected to the natural world, and we've forgotten it, lost our connections, most people don't interact with nature, understand farming, or understand the wild world, and yet we have such an impact on it. So there was this program at University of Washington, called Urban Ecology, and they were just starting it, which is an interdisciplinary science. Um, so we studied birds, but we also worked on interdisciplinary teams with geographers, with urban planners, with um, other groups to look at the impact of urbanization on ecosystems. And so though I said I did my master's on birds, really it was part of this umbrella program called Urban Ecology, which really opened my eyes to the possibility of interacting with those interdisciplinary groups to come up with a plan that says, here's how to do urban development now. We've learned how this impacts ecosystems. Here's a patch size of forest you need to leave in order to have an intact bird community in an urban area or a more intact bird community. I mean, you're going to lose some species. So, you know, you figure out something useful. So really applied science is what I'm interested in, especially in protecting our natural resources against human use, urban development, whatever the, the threat is in that area. And so that's, I briefly mentioned that I worked in Panama. And so one of the projects I worked on was in a national park called Coiba, and it used to be a penal colony. And why so many countries stick penal colonies on an island offshore that they do. There's loads of those. This was one that was a penal colony. Of course, centuries ago, there was natives there, but of course they were captured by 
you know, sailors roving the world, and so there was they were extirpated. But there's this intact ecosystems there, very untouched except for this penal colony, which occupied a small portion of one of the islands. And so not a whole lot of people were allowed out there to do research because of the penal colony. And so then after it was established a new national park, there was a call for proposals to look at the different biodiversity and resources. It's a marine park as well as the islands, the terrestrial portions. So I did a project on birds, three birds that are red-listed on the IUCN and that very little is known about and had never been studied before in the park. And that was to guide the management plan. You know, so that to me was a fundamental reason for studying these species. Like, let's figure out what are the population sizes? What, where are they on the islands? What are they doing there? You know, and how can you avoid developing those islands in such a way to, you know, harm those? And so it's a pretty, it was a pretty spectacular place. And so I would love to go back and do more work there. But anyway, so yeah, so that's kind of my interest, my background a little bit, but also my current interest in why I'm doing what I'm doing now, which for the last 10 years, I've been working for Ducks Unlimited in eastern Washington and northern Idaho, restoring wetland habitats, which are, of course, very critical ecosystems for people, flood control, water quality, as well as waterfowl, which is the focus of Ducks Unlimited, but obviously hundreds and hundreds (laughs) of other species benefit frogs many many other birds you know all kinds of things so aquatic invertebrates anyway so yeah yeah which is a rich and diverse background to bring to any conservation job really how long were you in panama i lived there twice i lived there in 2007 for only three months and that was my introduction to it and then i went back in 2008 for almost a year to do that project on Koiba. So how, I mean, how many seasons? I mean, for, so for an example, one of my undergraduate advisors had like a 45-year project where he would go and miss net in Costa Rica for like the same two months, but it was limited to just two months. Right. So what kind of a project setup was that? Well, it was supposed to be a full year, so collecting data throughout the year on these birds to go through their different seasons, like breeding season and non-breeding season. Um, and so I think we started in October or November, and we went through July or August. It's been 10 years now. So we didn't get a full year of data, but we wanted the rainy season, and we wanted portions of the dry season, because in the tropics, there's basically two seasons. And so, and yeah, and we did, um, I set up transects on one island called Coibita, which is this little island, and then the main island, Coiba, and there was other tiny, tiny islands that we didn't get to, just logistically, you know, it's expensive to, we'd have to hire a boat and have a guard and have a guide and have, you know, our boat captain and the gas and uh, my um, collaborator, um, Isis, was uh, the Panamanian ornithologist that I worked with. I had worked with her in 2000. Seven, and when I applied for the grant, I said, hey, do you want to work out on Koiba? And she was like, I've never worked out there. That would be phenomenal. So that was awesome. So she was my um, Panamanian ornithologist that I hired to work on the project with me. And so, um, so yeah, the first year I did something totally different. It was a friend of mine who had a PhD, and he was doing a postdoc um, there. Or maybe... Maybe it wasn't a postdoc. Anyway, he got a grant, and he wanted to go back to Panama. He lived there in the... In the um, uh, Peace Corps. Ooh. 
Yeah, so he was doing, and I was, and I met him in grad school, so we were both in the urban ecology program. So he was studying in Panama the first, the time he went, and I said, oh, I want to go. Can I come and work for you for a few months? And I had a job, you know, a full-time job, but I took three months off. I managed to finagle that and worked for him, and we were radio tagging different um, species from different guilds like a crimson tanager and one of the tree creepers and, you know, some of these different guilds of birds. And then we were radio tracking them in fragmented forested areas of the Panama Canal Zone forest and seeing if they avoided, you know, trails and roads or, you know, things like that. So looking at kind of how fragmentation of the forest affected these different guilds using a kind of, you know, member of each guild, one member of each guild, and track them around. So that was really cool. So that was my introduction to Panama, and that was like October, November, December of one year. And so, and then I came back the following year, and I got there in like, I think, September, and then through the next summer. So yeah, it wasn't quite a full year. Uh, yeah. Anything off the top of your head that you learned that surprised you about those well, three birds? Oh, about those? Well, about know, any of them. Well, one thing that was really interesting is this three species that I studied in Koiba. One of them is endemic to the Koiba National Park only, called the Koiba Spinetail. And so through the work that we did, we actually got the IUCN to identify it as a distinct species because it was categorized with a different spinetail that's only found in South America. Which is weird. It's like, okay, on uh, isolated islands in Panama, how is it related to, spe to other spine tails that are only found in, like, Colombia and other parts of South America? So through the work that we did, morphology and calls and behavior, um, we got the IUCN to identify it as a distinct species, which is critical. Because then if it's its own species and it's threatened by that limited range and endemism in Koiba, then it can be afforded different protections, hopefully. So anyway, so that was super cool that we were able to to get that done. And then another bird called the brown-backed dove, which is endemic to Panama only and has lost tons of habitat through, through conversion of forest to agriculture and also hunting of the bird, of the dove. And so Koiba could be a refuge for the population if it dies out on the mainland or if, you know, the population stays really low on the mainland. So that was really great. We got a lot of first ever data on that bird. Population numbers, we found nests of both the Koba spinetail and the brown-backed dove, which had not been described to science. We got their calls recorded, which had not been recorded and published. Lots of cool stuff. And then um, the third species was the, um, the three-wattled bellbird, if you've ever heard them. Nope. If, if not, I'll have to send you a link to one of the videos I took. They have oh, the should. craziest, bellbirds have the craziest call. It's like this honking, honking, bell-like, and it carries for miles. So we only found them at one of my transects, which was, Koiba is very mountainous and rugged, so I had transects at different elevations, and our highest elevation on the island, I put a transect up there. And so we had to hike, it, like we had to camp overnight on this mountain, we'd hike up with, you know, with uh, camping hammocks and we'd sleep up on the top of this mountain and do, do a transect the day we hiked up and then a transect the next day and then we'd, we'd go back down because we wanted to get two transects on every trip a month. 
And we only found the bellbirds on that transect. And they had been mentioned in a book by Ridgely and Gwynn, which were bird people, and they have a bird, it's a Panama book. In like 1970-something, one person heard a bellbird on Coiba, and that was the only documentation they had of the species. So they're migratory, and they have a crazy weird migration. They have they occupy um, four countries in Central America, but they have like a four-part migration from the Caribbean to the highlands to the lowlands of, of the Pacific side back to the lowlands of the Caribbean side. I mean, it's like this crazy migration. They don't, they don't leave that like latitude. Be, no, they're like that they're found weird. in the, these four countries in Central America. I would love to like radio collar them and like do more tracking work but apparently they're very sensitive and they die very easily when you capture them they're very stressed out so the people that did the trapping it was a very elaborate like you have to catch the bird and anesthetize it really quickly and then like keep it for a long period of time as it recovers and like it's real this yeah it sounded like it's really delicate operation but like the one radio tracking study that was done at the time showed this crazy interesting migration so nobody knew what, what are they doing on Koiba like it's 20 kilometers or something like that from its nearest point of land to Koiba. So they're flying over this patch of ocean. They're going to this little island, you know, out in, out in the Pacific, away from the mainland. And what are they doing out there? Is it just a migratory stopover? Is it a bunch of juveniles just hanging out? Are they breeding there? So we found them on that transect and we would find males, adult males, which look very distinct from the juveniles and females. And they were calling. They were advertising. And we never found a nest. We think we saw either a female or a juvenile once, but it's the kind like, you know, mannequins. Like they'll do these elaborate displays and then the female will choose the male that has the best display and then they'll mate obviously and she'll go nest on her own. Mm -hmm. They don't help out with the nest. So it's not like we could track the male to a nest. It's like we just heard these males calling for months. They were up there calling. And it was really cool. Nobody had ever found that out. So yeah, it was really fun to be like, oh my gosh, we found bellbirds at the top of Saratore. And then yeah. they were there again the next time we were there. And they were again the next time, the next month. And they were calling and we recorded them. And so yeah, I got some recording equipment and we recorded birds' calls and, and behavioral information and just stuff like that. And so yeah, it was super cool. Tons of stuff new to science on those three species on Koiba. How big is the island? <sighs> Like roughly small. I don't remember. Just like the principal. Probably like I don't know. I would have to say like twenty miles long from like north to oh, south, maybe like five miles wide. I don't remember. It's not, it's not big. No, in Coibita, which is where we stayed every time we went, because the Smithsonian was um, given an island by like some rich person from some other country who owned this island and then when it turned into a national park the Panamanian government and the Smithsonian were they just gave it the arg island. arguing about if they have the right to own an island within the national park and that went on for a really long time but now the Smithsonian officially has been granted the permission to own an island within a national park so it's basically going to be a research base now which is awesome which is awesome so did you work awesome. for the Smithsonian during this project? No, technically my funding was from an agency called Senesit. And so it's like the Secretary of Science, Engineering, and Technology or something to that effect was the name of the agency who funded it. Okay. But to work in Panama, I either had to receive money from this agency, I would either have to be Panamanian or have like, you know, some kind of work visa or something like that. And so the easiest way to do that was to work through the Smithsonian. 
And so to work through the Smithsonian, I had to have a sponsor. So there was a, um, an ornithologist, Dr. George Anger. And so he still lives down there. And he is, um, he actually published um, another Birds of Panama guidebook. And he has a lot of publications and things like that. And he actually helped me develop the idea. Because I met him when I was there in 2007. I heard about this call for proposals. I talked to George and I said, hey, I want to come back to Panama and do a bird project on Coiba. What, what do you think needs to be done? And after all the discussions, he thought, well, there's seabird work that needs to be done, the seabird colonies that need to be cataloged. You know, there's these species that no one knows anything about. So it was because of his knowledge and information that we came up with this project together. And then he was my, technically my sponsor in order to be able to work at the Smithsonian in Panama and to be able to receive this money. So the money went through the Smithsonian and then they, you know, they paid me my stipend and all that kind of jazz. So, so yeah, there was always with funding, there's always the circuitous explanation. Really, yes. I mean, that, these are the devils in the details. You can't just like pack up and move to a foreign country and expect to be able to work there. You've got to have all the permits and the visas. And so working in Panama was convenient because they help you with that. The Smithsonian has people that can help you with getting your visas and your permits and your all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. So that's how that worked. So it was definitely a collaboration between this Panamanian organization who was looking for information on the national park in order to help develop the, the management plan, the Smithsonian, and then, you know, me. <laughs> so... Yeah, with the idea and the passion. Right. <laughs> and the desire to go to some remote island. It just takes like a day to get to the island. For boating? No, like or? from Panama City, which is where oh, I was yeah. living because that's where the, the Smithsonian facility is, the campus is. So to get there, you have to take like three buses or two buses and like a taxi or a truck or a hitchhike or whatever to the final town where you can then take a boat two hours to the island. And then getting all the permissions to like stay on the island. I mean, logistically, it was an incredibly heavy project because there's the national park that you have to work with and work through, and there's the national police because they still have um, a um, presence at the site of the old prison. Um, and then the Smithsonian has their island, and there was a little house on the island that they have guards living in to just maintain it and all that. And technically, um, you know, it wasn't an official research station because of this working out of the differences between the Panamanian government and the Smithsonian to be able to use that on a regular basis. But I managed to kind of sneak in and like, oh, can we stay on Coibita, you know, while I'm out there <laughs> doing my research? Because it was much cheaper than staying in the park, the yeah. national park, and paying the park fees. So anyway, that worked out. Um, I did have the director of the Smithsonian at the time call me a pain in his butt. High five. So. Yep. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, because, I, yeah, that's kind of a long story. But yeah, so anyway, I ended up being able to work out of Coibita, which was this little house on that island, and that's where we stayed and we were based out of. But yeah, so I had to, you know, have ECs and myself and coordinate our schedules, and I had to hire a guide. Um, there was a guy named Molly Molly, and he's a native, one of the Panamanian native tribes, and he was actually imprisoned on the penal colony, so he lived there for a long time, and I don't know the story there, but he's been interviewed, and there's like a documentary on him. I mean, he's amazing. He's like, he is like, 
Steve Irwin doesn't even hold a candle with somebody like Molly Molly, who's like raised native, native Panamanian. You know, they don't even call themselves Panamanian. I think, I can't remember what what tribe he's from now. It's been 10 years since I lived there. Anyway, so he is now a park guard. He's now a park guard, but he also works with a lot of people from the Smithsonian. So when they go out to the islands, he's like their guide and their guard because there's, you know, dangers in the jungle. So we would hire a guide and a guard to be with us on our transects. So I never did a transect by myself. I always had either, it was either Isis and myself doing a transect or if we split up, We'd each take a guide or a guard with us. Then we had our boat operator waiting at the beach for us if something happened. Because there's fertile ants at the very least. So if somebody got bit by a fertile ants, you'd have to have have rescued immediately. And I mean one of the most dramatic things that happened was we was um, one week we went to the islands and George came with us one, on one trip and we split up to do different transects. He and Isis went up Saratore, which was the tallest mountain, which is an overnight trip. So you have to pack all your food, pack everything. And um, then I went off and did other transects for those two days. And, um, and the boat operator left the bay. He was supposed to stay in the bay where you get dropped off in case of an emergency. So if you look on the state website, state department website, it says not to go to Coiba if you travel to Panama because of drug trafficking. So what happened is, and this is common with the boat operators, and I went through like three or four boat operators. <laughs> <laughs> in the nine months we did field work. Oh, yeah. Um, is that they would leave. Because if you're going to be gone for four hours or overnight, they don't think anything's going to happen, really. And so they would go drive around looking for washed-up drug stuff. Yeah, because, like, if somebody's running drugs from Colombia up to Costa Rica and they get boarded or they think they're going to get boarded, they'll just dump it and it'll wash up on a beach. Or maybe they're looking for whatever. Who knows? Or maybe they're fishing, which is illegal in the park, but they didn't do it anyway. (laughs) So yeah, so like they came down and there was no boat operator there. And it was, they were fine. They were hungry. They were tired. They were thirsty. (laughs) They were fine. And the boat operator was gone. And they waited, I don't know, like two hours before he showed up again. And I was livid with him. I'm like, what if something had happened? Because we'd carry a sat phone. We would borrow a sat phone from the security office to take out with us for the week. But it would just depend on who needed the sat phone when. And they didn't take the sat phone with them on that trip, which they should have. But anyway, so nothing ever happened. It all worked out fine. But yeah, like there's dangers. And so we tried to mitigate those as much as possible. And luckily nothing bad ever happened. But yeah, we had, it was challenging at times. (laughs) Yeah, island work, one of my former bosses with real-time research, like, both of the projects that I was involved in were island-based, and Brad Kramer would regularly be like, yeah, if you take anything away from this job, island work is very intense, because, like, even from Astoria, East Sand Island, off the coast, like, in Cape Disappointment, is a quarter mile from the shore, and you have to, like, house yourself in Astoria, take a truck, get the boat, Go to the boat, right. then kayak to the island, then hike to the site. Right. It's Amen. like a two-hour process. Yes. And we were literally, you could see the island from, like, our apartment. Right. I can't imagine doing that in Panama. Yeah. Well, the closest place of land to the island is this little town of Pixby. But it's like a four-hour truck ride. Ugh on horrible roads that aren't even passable in the rainy season. We tried that twice, and it just, like, this is not sustainable. So then we decided to go from Santa Catalina, which is a two-hour boat ride, but it's much easier to get to Santa Catalina. It's got little hostels. It's got some restaurants. It's kind of a surfer 
place. It's got good surf, so they hold surf competitions there. So it's more developed. It still takes like a full day to get out to Coiva from Panama City. Um, even if you rented a car and drove it yourself, it's like seven hours to Santa Catalina and then a two-hour boat ride out to the island. You know, so it's, a, it's like a 20-minute boat ride from Pixby, but it's you, it's so much harder to get to Pixby. We tried it, and it was just like, this is not going to work. <laughs> the truck ride alone, four hours in a Jeep that's like climbing these giant ruts and the road is half washed away and you're like gonna die yeah it's just it was not sustainable and we're like and we can't get out here during the rainy season so it's just not gonna work yeah like from data and logistics no it just wasn't gonna work so yeah it was interesting yeah do you so you have all this data from all Mm -hmm. this experience you gonna do anything with it well, there was a report, so we did the so I did a report that went out to Tennessee, the national park, and the Smithsonian. And I have been in touch because you know we're talking about data curation with yeah. the Smithsonian again about curating this data. And the guy that I contacted most recently, he wasn't getting back to me. wasn't getting back to me. So finally, I emailed him again this week, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'm still waiting to hear from you. Like, are, is there a repository in the Smithsonian? There has to be. You know, you think there's a repository in the Smithsonian for data." collected and I don't know the permissions I was like this was funded by Tennessee I don't know if you need permission from them to possess the data but we should figure that out and like I can help figure that out maybe George can help figure that out so we can get this data curated and he finally emailed me back yesterday and he said actually this timing is perfect they just had a meeting that talked about this data curation thing and also the last ornithological newsletter from the AOS had this new data curation site called Dryad and I think it's for AOS published what literature. Oh, the American Ornithological Society. So, yeah. So, if you belong to the Auk or Condor or Wilson Ornithological Society, all those are housed under this one umbrella group called AOS. So, if you publish under them, I think they require that your data be curated. And it's made publicly available, so it can be publicly searchable. It's not just stuck in a database, so it's safe somewhere, but it's publicly searchable. So, I was thinking of contacting them and seeing if you could submit data to them, even if your data wasn't published in one of their journals. Mm-hmm. But if, if this guy, Steve Patton, with the Smithsonian in Panama has now a way. So yeah, we're moving to curate it, which would be great. And then George and I drafted a, a paper on this Quiva Spine Tail, and it just, in 10 years, keeps getting shoved to the back burner. I mean, he was working on his uh, guidebook, his Birds of Panama, you know, right after I finished the report. And then he was put in charge of, there's a new biodiversity museum in Panama. He was in charge of all the exhibits, like getting, like coordinating and building this museum and coordinating the exhibits. So he was in charge of that. So it was like, and I'm busy. You know, I'm a single mom. I have a full-time job that's more than full-time. You know, so it's not like I have 10 hours a week to continue writing manuscripts and updating things. So, I mean, it would go months at a time, and then one of us or other, George or I, would be like, hey, let's get back on this. And he's like, yeah, let's get back on this. Let's do something. And we'd make some edits, and he'd make some calls and find out who wants to publish this manuscript because it's it's really long. It's almost like a monograph almost because it's got so much information on the Cobus spine tail so it's like should we break it into pieces who will take it is it too long who you know so it's just like 
I think it's getting close, and we need to just find out who will publish it, and if somebody will publish it as a monograph, or kind of a longer thing, or if we need to break it into pieces. But then we still haven't done anything with, you know, we haven't written a manuscript for the bellbird and the dove. So anyway, so but you know, we did get the the IUCN to recognize the Clovis Bintel as an individual species. What does the IUCN stand for? For those who oh, don't know, International Union of Concerned Scientists. IUCN. So it's. I mean, I think it's something to that effect. Is, yeah. Just for people who are right. Listening. So the point some... of the IUCN is so in the United States, right? We have our Endangered Species Act. Yes. Okay. So the IUCN is global. Right. So species are listed. You know, red listed species is highly endangered. It's a color system, isn't it? It's a color system. And then in the United States, it's a number system. Yeah. Yes. It's like threatened, endangered uh, species of concern, or something like that. So yeah. So this is the international recognition of these species and their status worldwide. So that was a, um, I think that was a, a crowning achievement of some of the work, for sure. It sounds and like you could publish a book. Probably. From, like, just from, like, <laughs> the 12 months well, cumulatively. And, I mean, like, George contacted me recently, and he said some some people are, are publishing a bird list of Cueva National Park. And we, every time we went out, every day we went out, we would record all the birds we saw and heard. And he's like, can we use this data? I'm like, yeah. Heck, heck to the yeah. Like, go for it. And we were looking at it. So that takes some, you know, it's like, oh, this owl. I mean, you guys said you identified this owl, but that owl doesn't normally occur. And I was like, I look back through my notes and I'm like, oh, yeah, he said that it was the owl that's found on Koiba, but it just sounds different. It sounds like an owl that's found in the mainland. So it's like, so some of these species have different, you know, calls and behavior and slightly different morphology. So anyway, so yeah, so we recorded all this. So it's, some of that data is going to be published in a list, in a new bird list coming out for the park. So, I mean, it's there and it's still being used thanks to George Anger in Panama, but we still need to get it out to a greater audiences and get it curated so then it can be searched because even the Panama um, even in Panama the Smithsonian has databases on their website and you know for Koiba you can search and find out species and get like and you know I contributed a little bit to that but I mean I could contribute a lot more to that so even just their databases publicly searchable on their website could have more information but it just takes so much time. It does. And when you have a full-time job and a full-time life, it's hard to get to you. That's why it's taken this many years. I mean, it's been 10 years since I was in Panama, but it's only been like eight years since I finished like the final report. Because, you know, once we were finished with all the data, I had to actually generate, you know, like analyze all the data and generate the report. So anyway, but still it's been eight years. Yeah. Do you have like, just off the top of my head for like just sharing and for kind of cataloging these things, I think of like slideshows and like documentaries and things. Do you have a lot of photos? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have footage? Yeah. Yeah. Audio recordings? Video, audio, Maybe, you know, photos. Absolutely. You should... I don't know. You could put something like that on YouTube and at the very least just generate interest because I think that's interesting. And then when you submit it for something like that, the Smithsonian, you can have interviews with you, yeah. interviews with George, mm-hmm. and like actually put it together. Right. Yeah. Something to think about. Yeah, definitely. And I love doing stuff like that. So. Oh, yeah. And all that multimedia stuff, that's going to reach a wider audience because kids of today, they don't necessarily sit down and read something. They watch it on YouTube. Yeah. And documentaries <laughs> are really popular now because I mean 
Planet Blue, Blue Planet. Yeah, I, I don't watch it, but everybody talks about it, right? Because like it's people, pretty phenomenal. <laughs> well, people care. I think I watched an episode yeah. on undersea oceans. Anyway, it's awesome work. Yeah, How yeah, it was really awesome. Um, how do you think that's affected? Really hard. <laughs> so there was probably one day of each trip where I would just cry. Yeah. Yeah. It was tiring. It was exhausting. It was stressful. Worrying about the safety of my crew and like getting there and all the logistics. Having and I don't speak fluent Spanish. I speak good enough, but I'd have to like call the boat operator and call the national park head guy and say, "Yeah, we're coming out these dates," and let him know we were coming and get the permits and. You know, it was just yeah, organized with the security office in the Smithsonian to be there and all the logistical stuff. And yeah, so I think there'd be like one day on this trip where I would just be like, oh yeah, so exhausted and Co- complete <laughs> emotional wreck. Yeah, but it's awesome. And then I would go. There was like this little um, on the island that we stayed on. There was an old, I don't even know what you call it, like an orchard. And so I would go down there sometimes after dinner, or there was this like little lagoon on the other side of the island that you could walk to in like 15 minutes. Quibito was tiny, and they called it Playa Lagarta, which is beach of the alligators. And they would be like, "Don't go there alone!" Oh like, "Oh my god, there's giant crocodiles, saltwater crocodiles there too." And so I would be like, "Okay, my rationale is that I'll see it coming because you can see in the blue water." I'm like, and if it hits me, and I never know, they won't even know what happened to me. I'll just vanish one day, and I won't come back after dinner. But I would go to this lagoon, and I would stand in the water, and I would just look out over the jungle. I mean, I can still see it. I mean, you would see, like, manta rays jumping out of the water in the distance. They can do that? Yes. Whoa. And, you know, just birds. I mean, scarlet macaws fly free at Nueva. It's one of the last places where they haven't been hunted to extinction or collected for the pet trade. You know, and capuchin monkeys and howler monkeys. And, yeah, we saw fur ants and just, I mean, you just walk. I mean, and just like the sheer life was sustaining. You know, and I think so many people are missing that. You know, I mean, it's like you let fucking birders all around the world. And even in the U.S. where we still have so much open space, it's like most people just look out their window and look at their bird feeder. And that's their connection to nature, you know? And it's like, I got to work on Hoiba for nine months, nine field months. And most people, if they go once on a tropical vacation to Hawaii, yippee. It was so beautiful. (laughs) Right. And I'm like, you have no idea the unspoiled wilderness that still exists in some places and how valuable that is. And how we really, really, really need to protect it. And even we need to protect places that still aren't as wild, you know, and that are trammeled and need restoration and recovery, which is why, you know, work in conservation includes protection of important places that are still intact or as intact as possible. (laughs) All places are affected. There's really no getting away from that. And then enhancement of places that are, you know, have been impacted, but you can, you know, kind of get rid of the, you know, the maybe invasive species or kind of do some things to enhance it. And then full-on restoration, where total ecological function has been taken away, turned into something else, and then restore it back, hopefully, to some improved function, maybe not the way it used to be. And yeah, I get those benefits back again. So you've got to have all those tools to be able to to protect these resources and try to keep them going on into the future. 
Yeah. I the imagery of that lagoon, alligator lagoon. Uh, I've had experiences like that. I went to South America with my grandparents when I was fourteen, and like everyone would like walk forward, and I would just want to stand like if we did a canopy walk, you know. And just like I'm big on smells, you know, just the smells and the sounds. Like you can't even like as a birder, you can stand, you can do a point count, identify fifteen birds. Right. But in the in the forest, it's not possible. You know, there's just there's life everywhere. It's incredibly intoxicating. Yeah. But do you think that so like we're biologists, and you said you didn't grow up being particularly biologically inclined. Um, not outdoorsy anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah. so what's the distinction there? Well, I think I always loved animals, and I my family would always go to the to the Oregon on summer vacations, and so we would visit my grandparents and my aunt and uncle in different towns that they lived in, and then we would go to the Oregon coast, and my parents rented a beach house, and they'd be on the coast. So I didn't know necessarily much, that much about biology, but just being in the solitude of the outdoors where there's nothing but you and the waves and the water and the surprises that you'll find every morning is different on the beach something's washed up or the tide is at a different level or you know you never know what you're going to find so that sense of the bigger world and our place in it is so small and there's so much out there um, and our connectedness to it, you know, our intimate dependence for survival on that world that we, most people, aren't connected to at all on a daily basis. Flip on a light switch, turn it on your water faucet, instant light, instant water, instant food everywhere you go. You know, it's easy to forget how critically dependent we are on our tiny little planet and its quickly destabilizing climate. So just that sense of wonder, you know, I grew up with that, seeing that even for a week, summer vacation, that affected me on some deep level and made me want more. Like, I want this to be my life. I want to be part of that on a more regular basis. So, yeah, my parents did not teach me the ways of the natural world. We never went camping. They did not have a clue about any kind of wildlife identification, bird life, nothing. Like, I got none of that growing up. But, and in fact, I almost got the opposite because my uncles were all hunters and my mom was what I jokingly refer to as a bunny hugger. Where, like, you know, like, she called my uncle's trophy room where, like, this is, like, some, a few deer head and antlers. It's not, like, she called it the wall of death, you know, oh, so, like, geez. she, like, you know, like, in her mind, it was evil and it was this and that. And it's, like, well, you buy meat wrapped in a package from the grocery. You know, is that fair? Like, at least he's going out and he's hunting it. I mean, it's a rifle. It's not a bow. Like, I do have uncles and cousins now that bow hunt, which I think is a little more sporting. But anyway, and, you know, but still, I think it's a little bit of a double standard to criticize somebody for hunting and eating meat that's wrapped in a package that has giant economic and environmental impacts on our planet in producing that meat. Yeah. So... You know, so it's funny. I kind of grew up, you know, not necessarily exposed at all to nature. And the nature I might have been exposed to through my hunting family, I wasn't even given the opportunity to, to do that. You know, I mean, some families grew up and they take the girls hunting and teach them hunting. But no, in my family, that didn't happen. So, yeah, I kind of grew up 
just whatever. My family read a lot of books, watched a lot of TV, just did a lot of city stuff, I guess. But yeah, I think it definitely was. And I think that really, to me, signals the importance of getting kids out in nature, even if it's a little bit. You know, like if you remember that trip to South America so vividly, you know, we can get kids in schools, even for a camp for a week or somewhere out in nature and give them that experience. Not all of them, but some of them will feel that call of the wild and say, wow, this is something that I don't know what it is, but I feel connected to it. I feel a call. I feel a pull. Like this is... You know, it's something. Maybe they can't even explain what it is. I don't think I could have explained what it was when I was 10, wandering the beaches in Oregon, looking for shells and poking anemones so they squirt water and finding little shore crabs and turning over rocks in the intertidal zone and scuffing my feet on the sand at night to see the bioluminescence. I didn't know what plankton was, but I knew that your feet could make sparks at night on the beach. That's awesome. You know? I didn't know that. Yeah, try it sometime. (laughs) I will. So, yeah, so it is. It's it's like the sense of mystery and wonder. Like, what else are you going to find? What else is out there? And then the fascination when you find out, oh, my God, it's an octoluca, this tiny little unicellular plankton that can glow in the dark. It's like, what? Mine just exploded. <laughs> and then you want more, you know? It's like, what else is out there? You know, and I think we don't talk enough to kids and to even, you know, high schoolers and college kids about what we don't know. It's like you're taught what you know. Like, right, we teach science, and here's what we know, and here's how photosynthesis works, and here's species, and here's this and that. But you talk to scientists all over the world, you watch documentaries, and it's like, we've explored 1% of the seabed on our planet. A whopping 1%. Right. And in between the 70s and the 90s, three entirely unknown ecosystems to humans were discovered that lived off the hydrothermal vents, so chemosynthesis, the first ever ecosystems that humans have discovered that don't rely on the sun, right? Every other ecosystem that we have known about derives its energy from the sun and from plants as their base, right? So these don't. They rely on chemosynthesis of methane, of hydrogen sulfide seeping from the ocean floor. There's three different kinds of ecosystems that they found on the seafloor that do not rely on the sun. I mean, these are mind-blowing, yet who even knows about them and who knows what else is out there on the seabed? You know, and my, you know, there was one documentary I watched recently on Netflix, and there was a, a microbiologist, and I can't remember the numbers, don't quote me, but it was something on the order of, we know of a million different microbes. Like, we've discovered, named, or whatever. They're, they estimate there's actually 10 billion. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's mind-blowing. And it's like, and what, how we're changing the planet and how fast we're eating it up and converting all these lands and changing the climate and what we still don't know, right? And, and that's even just the study of species. Like, what are their interactions with everything? So the ecology as a science is so young. How do all these species interact with each other and depend on each other? You know, it's like I can, I can go off for years about how just furious it makes me, like, the extirpation of species and how people don't seem to care. And even, like, we recover something, but we still don't really understand the full magnitude. Like, think of bison. There used to be 70 million bison. 
And I wonder to myself, well, then what happened to the pronghorn antelope? These little tiny antelope compared to this giant bison, and they have the giant bison have a snowplow for a head, right? That's how they survive the winter. They use their giant snowplow heads to clear snow to get to the grasses. Well, what other species relied on that? That when there was feet and feet of snow out on the Great Plains, they couldn't get to the grasses and they all died. I mean, they tried to reintroduce pronghorn antelope to central Washington a few years ago, and they were doing well until a winter where we got these thaw-freeze events where it made this really solid crust on the top of the snow, and they died. Almost the entire herd of pronghorn antelope that they reintroduced, and it was reproducing and doing well, died because they couldn't get to the grass underneath. And then you have the wolves. You know, they've documented all of these interactions now at Glacier National Park, at, at Yellowstone National Park, and other places where the wolves have come back and reestablished, you know, a balance that hasn't been seen in those areas in 100 years because of the wolves and the interactions they have with the other species. Um, restoring the riparian vegetation, taking the coyotes down, which causes the, the rodent population to come back, and then the raptors come back and, you know keeping the elk herds moving so they can't decimate the riparian zones and then those zones start growing back and then you get beaver and then you get dams and then you get fish and invertebrates and frogs and you know so it's just like this you know we're just monkeying with the whole network and we don't have a clue what it's all about so ecology as a science is so new how do all these species interact you can name them catalog them know they exist count them say they're endangered how do you even know how they all are working together? Soil microbes. I mean, everything. Every, I mean, it's just amazing. So I just hope we get more and more and more people excited about this, realizing how connected we are to this, doing something about it, whatever they can do, and more and more kids getting into science and conservation, you know, to do something however small to make a difference. I mean, even in my son's class, there's this group they've formed, and I think they read Harry Potter because they've named themselves Spew, S-P-E-W. Oh, so precious. The something like society or the Stop Plastic Environmental Waste group. Oh, cool. They have t-shirts, they have buttons, they're going to they're gonna sponsor like a river cleanup where they go pick up garbage, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it's like whatever we can get people aware of all the plastic nightmare that's going on, everything, you know, reducing our consumption of natural resources, conservation of wild lands, just whatever, you know, so you get involved. So you don't think that people need to have like a South America, Panama, profound alone in the rainforest moment? I would love it if everyone could. I would love to take everyone, if it didn't ruin those places, <laughs> I'm like, nobody talk about Coiba. Leave it alone. Don't don't breathe. Don't <laughs> let anyone know it's there, because then it'll get ruined, right? But, I mean, I don't think we have to take kids that far to give them that experience. I wish they could, though. I mean, because, the, because like you said, the amount of life in a place like that, you can't, it's not seeing it with your eyes. It's you absorb it through every pore in your body. Your body just knows. Immersion. Yeah. It is. You know, but even kids who you know, get excited about fishing, you know, spending the time on a boat, out on a river, catching a fish, holding it in your hands, seeing it, whatever they're into, you know, rocks, going and collecting rocks and being out in nature, because you see so much when you're in an environment, when you're just in it and you're sitting still and you're 
there. We just see so much more and that creates that connectedness. So everybody may have some different experience, but it just, it to me, means that it's so important to get kids involved somehow. And each kid may have to find their own pull. You know, to some kids it'll be rocks, to some kids it'll be birds, to some kids it'll be whatever, water. But yeah, I think I think that that feeling is lying dormant in a lot of us because I mean we haven't been out of the jungle that far ourselves. We think in like geologic terms of millions of years, dinosaurs around for hundreds of millions of years, it's like humanoid forms right, have been around for like less than a million total, and it's only been the last couple hundred that we've really come into this age of technology, living in cities, lights, you know, like all the technology that it's informed us for improving farming techniques and all this kind of stuff, right, it's only a couple hundred years? We're not that far out of the jungle ourselves. So I think you just put the kids in it, and it lights that fire a little bit. So, I mean, even adults, everybody can get out in that, and, and you know, experience something like that. Night sky. You know, how many people never see a true dark night sky? You know, I mean, there's established dark sky parks in the U.S. Not that far, like in Utah. The first established ever dark sky parks. And you can see hundreds of millions of stars in the sky. Where you see like 50 or 60 in a city. You look up at night in a city, less than 100 stars are visible and you get out into those true dark sky areas and it's in the millions, hundreds of millions. It's, yeah, and so something like that, anything to get you out of, to get people out of their silo, like expose them to something bigger than themselves and their place in it is important because they're not going to care. They're just sitting behind their TV for their whole life. Yeah, there's you're only getting stimulated, you know, audio and visually from the television. But yeah. and I think you lose something in human connectivity. We've got such a problem with like social anxiety, just because none of us feel that connection. You know, we yeah. assume that the words are what's important when really it's the way that you say the words and all these other things. Yes. I have more questions, but we're nearing the end of our interview time. So, do you have any final closing thoughts about your experience in Panama? I don't know. Anything come to mind to take us out? Um, just that I would say to anybody listening that has that pull in their heart to do something crazy. I mean, it was the scariest freaking thing I ever did. I quit my job. I had a, I had a job with the state, full-time, career-type job. Oh, wow. I had a house. I put the house up for rent. I quit my job, and I left the country. And it was really freaking scary. And it was one of the best things I've ever done. It was amazing. It took a lot of courage, a lot of risk. I had support from friends and family. I think my mom would have swooped in and, and rescued me had anything happened in Panama. <laughs> my mom, who'd never been on a hike in her life, would have come down in the middle of Panama to rescue me if she thought I was in danger. But yeah, I think it's it's follow whatever that spark is. And if you feel inclined to do anything, find a way and do it and find the support to do it. Don't try to do it alone, you know, because then, that, then that's overwhelming. But find other people who are doing it, join them, and find a way to follow something because it will be worth it. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. It's been fun. Yeah. <laughs>